we'll jump in. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we praise you and thank you for waking us up this morning and, and giving us a, another opportunity to grow in our understanding of you and your word. And so pray as we open up and look at the, the book of Genesis that we would love your word, that we would see all of the, the beauty and, and glories in it, and that we would cherish it with all of our, our life, and that we would submit our life under the, the truth found in your word. And we pray this in, in Jesus' name, amen. So today we're continuing our study through the Old Testament, and the plan is to finish out our study through the book of Genesis this morning, which is quite a bit. I think we have, I'm bad at math. We ended at chapter 6. What is that? 44 chapters left. There you go. 43 chapters left. Um, but really, the second half we're going to go through very quickly. Um, but remember that, that we're working our way through the book Dominion and Dynasty by, by Stephen Dempster, which is serving as our guide through um, the, the Old Testament study. And the last time we finished off with the story of God's utter destruction of creation because of the rampant, unrestrained sin of humanity. And we saw God flooding the earth and choosing Noah as the one whom, whom he's going to rebuild humanity through. And what we find in the text is that God establishes a covenant with Noah. And in the context of the covenant, we know that, that God is saving Noah, his family, and, and the animals from his, his coming wrathful judgment for humanity's sins. In the aftermath of the flood, when, when the waters recede, Noah and his kin will provide the beginnings of a new creation. A new creation. And this language of new creation is very intentional by by Dempster and, and other biblical theologians because there are many points of connection between the creation account, which we covered last week in Genesis 1 through 3, and the world after the flood. In Genesis 8-1, we see that, that God made a wind blow over the earth and the floodwaters subsided. That word for wind is the very same word we see in Genesis 1-2, which is translated there as spirit. It's the Hebrew word ruach. Ruach, they say it much better than that. It's like ruach, but ruach, which means breath, wind, or, or spirit. And I think this is one piece of evidence that indicates to us that, that what is happening after the flood is, is a point back to creation. So we could say a new creation of the world. And when Noah and his family emerge into this world after the flood, the post-flood world, they're given the very same commands that the first couple were given, to be fruitful and multiply. So there seems to be points of connection, right, between the creation account and, and the narrative of life right after the flood. And it's important to note that the covenant... God makes with Noah is actually with, with all of creation. God promises never again to unleash the waters of his wrath over the planet ever again. We could say that the promise and 
obligation of the covenant then is for, for God to keep. And that promise is that God will never wipe away creation again. Which is good news that God is the covenant keeper because he can't break that covenant. He can't lie. He can't break the covenant promise. And for that reason, this covenant is still in place with, with us today, with all of creation today, and will be until the end. Interesting, I find this interesting, that the, the language here indicates that this covenant with Noah is a reestablishment of a covenant that, that already existed, which, which I think is more evidence to something we talked about last week, that there, that there is a covenant between God and Adam in Genesis 1 through 3, just given the linguistic um, nature of their, a reestablishment of a covenant with Noah or with creation. And we know that the sign of this covenant with creation is the rainbow. Dempster writes of the rainbow, he says, This is God's unilateral disarmament treaty. The bow is a weapon of war that God tosses aside. The judgment of the flood is over and will never happen again. So other scholars have noted how even today when we see the rainbow, uh, the, it, the, the bow, the weapon, is facing away from the earth. Right? It, it symbolizes to us that God, again, will never destroy humanity. His weapon is faced away from earth, from humanity pointed towards himself. So now at this point in the narrative, Noah is viewed as a, a new Adam-like figure, a new Adam in the new creation with the same mandate to be fruitful and to multiply and have dominion over the earth. And like the first Adam, Noah fails and he falls into sin rather quickly in the narrative. Noah took fruit from the vine and sinned. And like, like Adam took fruit from the tree and sinned. Notice that, that connection of fruit. Noah gets drunk off the, the wine of his vineyard and he lays naked in his tent. And we see that Ham, one of his sons, Noah's sons, witnesses Noah's nakedness and is cursed because of this action. He's cursed by God because of this action. And Ham's son will be cursed because of his wickedness. And one of Ham's sons, who is Canaan specifically, is pointed out. Canaan, that name should register to us when we think of how the story unfolds later, and the content of the curse, according to Dempster, indicates the, the future subjugation of the Canaanites by the descendants of one of Ham's brothers, Shem. And Shem is marked in the, in the narrative by divine blessing, which is in contrast to the cursing of Ham. So Genesis 9.26, I'm going to just rattle off a bunch of verses this morning, so it might just be best to just write them down. You can look them up later. Um, but Genesis 9.26 says, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. Let Canaan be his servant. 
So if we're following the big story, then we can conclude that Shem's genealogical line has been, been singled out by God. And we're going to see this more clearly in the subsequent stories. That, that through Shem's line will come the hope of the world. The, 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 the hoped for or the, the promised seed in Genesis 3.15. So moving on to Genesis 10... Genesis 10 describes then all of the nations that then descended from Noah after the flood. And this is sometimes referred to as the table of nations. The table of nations. You may see that heading in your Bible. So this, this portion of the scriptures serves, functions as, as sort of a map of the ancient world. Indicating the various ancestors of the ancient nations and their lands. And Dempster argues that we can see from the structure of this table of nations that Moses, who, who is the author of Genesis, is, is giving prominence to Shem, who we've talked about already, Shem. The final focus in this chapter is on the descendants of Shem, which Dempster is arguing conveys a, a a final importance, kind of a rhetorical device used by Moses, again indicating that it is from the line of Shem that this promised seed will come. But Dempster points out that all of these nations are in exile, having been dispersed from a central location. And we see the story for, for why this dispersion occurred in Genesis 11. So the first thing we need to notice about Genesis 11 is that it happens chronologically prior to Genesis 10, which is confusing. But all of the nations, all of the people of the earth spoke, spoke one language and lived in, in one land, of the land of Shinar. And they're building a tower there whose top of the tower would reach the heavens. That, that was the goal of the peoples. And this appears to be an attempt to, to erase the boundary between humanity and God, the, the Tower of Babel. And the whole human community is partaking in this, this prideful act of men trying to make what Dempster calls an eternal name for themselves. And this act is a, a high-handed act of rebellion against the holy God. And in the storyline, right, coming right after the flood, it seems as nothing has changed since the flood. That, that humans are still wicked and displaying their evil, prideful ways of trying to be like God. Now God, in response, he, he confuses humanity's language. He disperses all of the people and, and the they take the form of the 70 nations that are found in chapter 10. Now directly after this in chapter 11, the genealogy of our good friend Shem is resumed. And we get another 10 member genealogy in the text. And that number 10 is important in the book of Genesis as we've already seen last week. This, and this genealogy, Shem's genealogy ends with Abram. So the next great important character in the story. 
This genealogy mirrors Seth's genealogy. I always want to look at Seth when I say Seth. Seth's genealogy in chapter 5, which we looked at last week. And Seth's, who, whose, whose last member saved the line of humanity from the flood, remember that was Noah, who was an Edemic-like figure, whom a covenant with creation is made. And now ten generations after Noah, there is one from his line named Abram. So we see just as Adam to Noah was ten generations, so is Noah to Abram. Which I think is an important connection to make when you're reading the narrative. Um, It gives you a a clue at the importance of the person, right? Being ten in the line, tenth in the line. And as we'll see, the genealogical focus of the rest of the story will now be focused on this individual Abram and his line. Abram, who of course later becomes Abraham, is massively important to the rest of the storyline of of all of the scriptures, including the New Testament. So we're going to focus on him for a while, but first, any questions or comments from what we've covered so far? Well, I think the, the the clear answer to that is no, because we see in, with Sodom, you know, after that there's a destruction of a city. But I think it's more of a, a total annihilation of creation itself, of all of humanity again, would be how I see it. It sounds good. I think, yeah, I think that that. Much better from this source. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Which we're going to see very quickly here how Genesis 12, 1 through 3 is massively important, as your note says, to the rest of the promises in Scripture. So one way that we can know Abram is especially important in the storyline of Genesis is by just looking at the pace of the narrative. So the previous millennia before Abram can be described in 11 chapters, Genesis 1 through 11, while the next 25 years that chronicle the life of Abraham takes up 10 chapters in the book. So, Dempster, so, so you can just see the focus denotes more importance. Dempster writes of this saying, in the narrative world, it's as if the world has been waiting for this moment, the arrival of Abram, the 10th from Noah. And what we see with Abram is that he is told to leave the world of Babel so that he can have God's piece of geography. God's piece of geography. And Abram and his barren wife, Sarai, are promised that they will become a great nation through which all families of the earth will be blessed. We see this clearly in, in Genesis 12, 1 through 3. This, this indicates to us not only the, the genealogical dimension to the promise God gives to them, but also a royal one. Because the, the promise to become a great nation assumes a political and, we could say, royal or regal dynasty. And we'll see these, these royal overtones as Genesis moves on, especially at the end of Genesis when we focus on Judah. But what we see then is that Abram's name will be made great by, by God building him into a great nation that will bless all the nations that have just been dispersed in Genesis 10. And we know that this nation will, will later be called Israel, as we have the, the full story. 
But Dempster notes something important, that here at the, the embryonic state of Israel, at the, at the very beginning of Israel's history, we could say, is the fundamental truth that Israel has been made, Israel has been made for the benefit of all nations. And, it, and it's been that way from, from the very inception, for the benefit of the world. So we could say then that Israel's calling is in some way missiological, to be on a mission, which that truth will shape then how we view the nation of Israel and the unfolding narrative of the Old Testament, especially with the coming of Christ. Now in the narratives of Abram and, and Abraham's life that we see in Genesis, the twin themes we've been tracking in this series are, are, are you, you've guessed it, very apparent both geography and genealogy. And we've already seen this in the promise God makes to Abram in Genesis 12 to give him land and a nation through his seed. Dempster notes how there, there's a massive focus on, on land and descendants in the entire Abraham narrative. So we're going to spend a lot of time um, looking at these stories. <clears throat> and this can loosely be broken down into two sections of Abraham's life. Genesis 12 through 15, which is sort of the, the first chapter of Abram's story, and then Genesis 16 through 22, which would be the, the final chapter. So we're going we're gonna to breathe, breeze through these stories as they're important to the, to the unfolding larger story. So in Genesis 12, right after the promise given to Abram by God, he and Sarai reach Canaan, and Abram has a vision from God that, that emphasizes both these themes, geography and genealogy. Abram is told that this land to which he has come, Canaan, will be given to his descendants. And this vision and promise looms large, right, in the, in the Exodus account, as we're going to see, and as the narrative moves into Joshua, when, when Abram's descendants move into the promised land. But, but just after this, Abram is faced with a critical choice. So he just receives this, this um, vision and promise. A but then right after that, he's faced with a critical choice as there's, there's a famine in the land God has just brought him to in Canaan. And it appears that Abram acts in fear by, by fleeing to Egypt. He, he, so notice he, he's jeopardizing the promise of land through his actions. And I think that's how we're to take his response here. He, he, he's not acting as he should. And I think this is affirmed as we, we also see that he jeopardizes the promise of seed as, as well in this story. He passes off Sarai, his wife, as his sister to ensure his own personal safety. And, and she's taken into the Pharaoh's harem. Which, which obviously imperils the promise of seed. So Abram completely fails here. I think that's how we're to view him in this story. But the Lord is gracious. I know we can all relate to the Lord being patient and, and exceedingly patient and gracious amidst our unfaithful, foolish choices. And it's the same for Abram. The Lord protects Abram and Sarai and rescues them from this Egyptian plight and returns them back to Canaan. When they're back in the, in the land of promise, 
Ephraim nearly fails again by, by endangering the promise of land by offering up um, to his nephew Lot uh, an offer of land. And Lot chooses the, the quote-unquote better land that, that was better in his eyes in the plain of Jordan near Sodom and leaves the land of Canaan to Abram. Again, God is faithful to Abram amidst Abram's unwise actions and, and decisions. And we see that, that in Genesis 13, verses 14 through 18, Abram builds an altar to God and worships him there. There, there, there is a special relationship between Abram and Yahweh. In chapter 14, Abram is depicted as a, as a, I couldn't think of a better word, as a military hero. As he rescues Lot from, from Mesopotamian kings. And Dempster points out that, that this is the first text in the Old Testament that, that features kingship and war explicitly. So ten kings are mentioned. And Abram is portrayed as a pretty awesome figure in this story. I think this chapter would make a great movie, like an epic war movie. We see Abram as the conquering warrior who, who, who's able to defeat the Mesopotamian armies with only his 318 servants. Abram is functioning as a type of, of king here who is defeating the kings of the ancient world in military battle with, with far less resources. At the very least, we could say that he's very much acting like a king. He's doing what kings do by, by defeating other kings and war, which again foreshadows the, the royal nature of his, of his line, of his seed. So this victory that, that Abram has indicates to the reader that Abram is the superior king, not because of anything within himself, right? he's an old nomad, but because of the, the supernatural help that he receives. Because he has the Lord God on his side. And after the defeat, Abram is blessed by a king named Melchizedek. So I'm sure that name is ringing alarms in your mind. You've heard it before, Melchizedek, who's also noted as a priest of the God Most High. You can see that in, in chapter 14, verse 18. So a lot is going on with this Melchizedek figure, um, the priest king. And he comes back in our Bibles, actually in the New Testament book of Hebrews, as Jesus is viewed as an even greater priest king than this Melchizedek. He is important, but we're, we're not going to get lost in the Melchizedek weeds. For our purposes, we just need to see that, that he blesses Abram. And we can see that the Most High God is at work defeating his enemies through this, this very old nomad-turned-warrior king, Abram. So it's honestly a, a, a pretty shocking, almost comical story in the narrative. Um, but we can say without a doubt that God is, like he's had through, so far throughout Genesis, he's clearly acting in history to bring about his promises, to bring about his purposes. And Genesis 15 concludes the, the first section of the Abram narrative and the, the twin themes of 
genealogy and geography are again present. Abram is reminded by God that he will have a child, but Abram is old, he's still childless, so he asks the Lord to, to substitute his servant Eleazar for the promised seed. Right? Abram is viewing the, this promise of seed in strictly earthly terms. He's old, his wife is barren, why not take my servant Eleazar? He doesn't see clearly how God will give him a son in his old age and with his barren wife. God rejects this request and instead points out the stars to Abram and says, this will be the number of your offspring, the number of the stars, an an innumerable amount of offspring, of descendants. And in verse 6, Abram believes the Lord, verse 6 of chapter 15, and Abram's belief is counted to him as righteousness, his, his faith. So the theme of land then naturally follows, since a great number of descendants require somewhere to live, require land. In verse 7, Abram asks the Lord God when he will possess the land. And in a sort of a strange re- response, God ratifies his covenant with with Abram with a sacrificial ritual of passing through um, the cut halves of animals. So this is the the typical way covenants were were ratified in this time. And and God passes through the animal halves, again, ratifying his covenant with Abram. God states that the the promised land, the, the dominion or the the coming into the promised land of his descendants will take 400 years after Abram until the iniquities of the Amorites are complete, or the, the Canaanites, until their iniquities are complete. So we can see that, that through Abram, again, the divine goal of history is being worked out. That God's promises are being worked out through Abram. The promise of land and seed is happening that we've seen so far through the, the, the beginning of Genesis, that promise is happening through Abram and through his descendants. So again, very hard to understate the importance of this event and the storyline of Scripture. So now the, the second section of Abram's life occurs in chapters 16 through 22. So this section of the narrative shows Abram years older and still struggling to trust God's great promise. And his wife Sarai encourages Abram to have a child through her much younger servant Hagar. This is a very terrible idea, obviously. Abram listens to this very terrible idea and he fathers Ishmael. But it's the wrong decision. And you can see that clearly if you just read the, the narrative. It, it doesn't end well. And really the, the narrative is devoid of much hope at all. Dempster says uh, Abraham or Abram is now 99. His wife is 89. They just came off this, this terrible decision to have a child through Hagar. Out of jealousy, Sarai demands Hagar and Ishmael leave their, their protection It's just a a bad situation all around. Not good. But God is not done with Abram. 
He is again faithful to his promise. And we see in chapter 17 what Dempster calls a, a revolutionary new beginning signaled by transformations. In chapter 17, a revolutionary new beginning signaled by transformation. So God changes Abram's name to Abraham and commands him to be circumcised along with all the males in his house, household. So, so not a super fun process. Circumcision serves as a sign of the covenant God made with Abraham and comes with a new obligation for Abraham to, to walk before the Lord and to be blameless. Now Abraham in, in Hebrew roughly means father of many nations. Father of many nations. So God changed, think about this, God changes his name to the promise he's given him all those years back. Right after they make this foolish decision with Hagar. It's as if God is giving Abraham a massive reminder of his faithfulness by giving him a new name that literally entails the promise given to him. It's like if you change your name to heaven. Like this is the promise that I'm giving to you. Heaven. So Sarai's name is changed to Sarah, which is the name that, that, that means princess in Hebrew. It's no doubt, again, notice the, the royal overtones. It's a royal name. The implication being Sarah is the mother of many nations, as well as the mother of a royal dynasty. You can see that royal connection clearly um, in Genesis 17, verse 16. It reads, she, that Sarah, shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. Kings of people shall come from her. So no doubt, no doubt notice the, the royal connections. A, a royal dynasty will come from her line, which we're going to see again and again in the text. So I'll pause here. Any questions, comments? I know we're flying through, and we're still in chapter 17, so we've got... I'm still, bad, I'm still bad at math, but more to go. Okay. So now this, this whole scene, from a worldly pr perspective, seems pretty absurd, right? That these old barren people, Abraham and Sarah, are to do what? Become, become the, the father and ruler of many nations with descendants that number the stars? And with the... And they're old and barren. So with the outrageousness of this plan by God comes with it in the narrative, the theme of laughter. The theme of laughter. Abraham laughs when God says he will give Sarah a son. And even asks God to take Ishmael as the promised seed. He, he's still not fully getting it. And the notion of having a kid at 90 seems equally, if not more, ridiculous to Sarah. So three mysterious visitors appear to, to Abraham and Sarah, and they announce to Abraham the imminent birth of Isaac to Abraham. It's going to happen quickly now. And Sarah laughs to herself after eavesdropping on the conversation. And God gives their son's name, or gives their son the name Isaac, which literally means laughter. So Dempster argues here that the laughter motif and this portion of scripture, or in this portion of the narrative, highlights the shock of the divine gift. The, almost the, the absurdity of the divine gift. 
that this is something that couldn't be calculated, this couldn't be planned by humans, by human scheme or ingenuity. Only God will gain the credit, only God will gain the glory of this amazing promised seed, which foreshadows for us another amazing, miraculous, God-given birth that occurs later in the scriptures in a Bethlehem manger, which only God could do. And what seems like a departure from the story of the promised seed, the, the last half of chapter 18 and chapter 19 of Genesis chronicles the events with the city of Sodom. But I do think there's, there's implications for the larger story, especially the, the theme of being a blessing to the nations. So Abraham knows that, that Sodom is a wicked place, but he, he dares to plead for their life as God plans to judge their wickedness through, through death. And according to Dempster, Abraham's argument is based on a conception of justice shared with God that would not permit the righteous to be destroyed along with the wicked. So Abraham and God have this dialogue about the amount of righteous people in Sodom. And God says to Abraham that he will spare the city if only ten righteous people remain in it. Abraham intercedes for the city on behalf of ten righteous individuals that he presumes are there. Obviously we know the story. Abraham's prayer is not enough to save the city as there's not even ten righteous. God destroys Sodom and only Lot is spared with his two daughters. So now from a larger big picture perspective, the, the radical nature of Abraham's intercession is seen. Dempster writes, Abraham, the father of nations, pleads for the salvation of, a, of the city on behalf of its righteous. His prayer does not succeed in saving the city, but it does save one righteous, Lot. And there's a suggestion in the text that Abraham's role, and by implication the role of his seed, will have consequences for the salvation of the nations. Will have consequences for the salvation of the nations. I think this is the, the right connection that we should make with this story of, of, of Lot's salvation from the fire of God's wrath on Sodom. And it connects it again to the larger theme of God's people being a, a benefit to the nations. And ultimately the, the salvation of the nations. Finally, in chapter 21 comes the promised seed, Isaac, the one that we've been waiting for in the Abraham story. And no sooner are the birth and early childhood of Isaac described than the scene shifts to the most severe crisis in the narrative thus far in Genesis 22, where the Lord commands Abraham to sacrifice this promised seed that he was just given and to kill Isaac. And two things stand out in this story, according to Dempster. First, the obvious, the child of promise being sacrificed. And second, Abraham's amazing faith. Abraham's amazing faith in this story. Abraham takes his son, remember his only son, whom he loves, the longed-for and hoped-for descendant that the narrative has, has been building up towards and the father is told to take him to the site he had received the very blessing from God and to put him to death. 
But in that climactic moment of the seed's destruction, God provides a sacrifice to stand in the place of Isaac. And just like Abraham's whole story that we've seen so far, which is really an awesome story, it's, it's just great, God provides for exactly what Abraham needs, just like he's done all along. And I do think this has foreshadowing themes that we see in the death of our Lord on the cross. God will provide the ultimate sacrifice in the death of his own son, Jesus Christ. The promised seed will one day be killed. It just will not be Isaac. In verse 17 is the first time God promises to Abraham that, that in addition to having a massive number of descendants and, and a nation... He will also possess the gates of his enemies. It's a good, good phrase to underline. The gates of his enemies. This is a military term meaning Abraham will destroy or, or through his seed will destroy his enemies. This means in the context, right, that, that Israel will experience military success. But in the larger story, this military success has a larger theological ramifications. Dempster points out that the real enemy and the big story that we've seen so far is the deceiving serpent from chapter 3, which we, which we talked about last week. The serpent here, I would argue, is in view. And the expression takes the gate of the enemies is in, this, in this cosmic sphere would mean to, to strike a blow and crush the serpent's head through Abraham's seed. So now for, for time's sake, we're going to go on to the Jacob story, which will involve his father Isaac. Dempster makes the argument that the, the oracle given to Isaac's wife, Rebecca, which we're skipping the story how Rebecca comes in the scene, but, but the oracle, um, the, the prophetic word that came to Rebecca. Is, is she's given a word from the Lord in Genesis 25, 23, extremely important verse, which Dempster argues is the engine that drives the Isaac narrative. So, which is a very short narrative. Isaac's narrative is very short compared to his dad's, Abraham's, and his son, Jacob. But this prophetic word is given to Rebekah, and it states this, two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. So from this verse, we can see that, that the focus in the Isaac story is on the, the electing purposes of God. God's sovereign choice of election. Seen in the birth of Esau and Jacob and the unexpected transfer of the blessing or the promised seed to the younger son, Jacob out of God's choice. And from this point, the story then focuses on that younger son, Jacob. And Dempster points out that, that two birth scenes frame the life of Jacob in the narrative of Genesis. Two birth scenes. So first, the, the struggle with Esau in the womb. And then the struggle with God, which we see in Genesis 32, the, the struggle with God at the Jabbok River where, where he, he's reborn as Israel, given a new name. Another important event 
in the life of Jacob occurs in Genesis 28. Genesis 28, where he, he's on the run. He, he's fleeing from his brother Esau's wrath where he has a vision that I think is supposed to point us back to Genesis 10 and the Tower of Babel, where there at Babel, humanity attempted to make a tower that reaches to the heavens. We could say that, that they were trying to bring earth to heaven. Jacob has a dream of a, of a ladder or a ramp connecting heaven to earth, and, 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 and Angelic beings move up and down on the ladder, and the Lord pronounces a blessing on Jacob. And the blessing is this. It's in Genesis 28, verses 13 and 14. And notice here, notice the promise of land and seed. God says, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. So, so God is meeting man now, or bringing heaven to earth, a, a reverse of Babel, through blessing Jacob and his seed with, the, with the, the same Abrahamic promise that we saw in Genesis 12. So the, the, the narrative around Jacob's life centers on his, his sojourn in Mesopotamia, where, where he and his wives that, that he, he gets and concubines, they produce, eventually, the entire family of Israel. So I'm doing a lot of fast-forwarding here. But Dempster points out how the, the narrative pace slows down almost entirely in chapters 29 and 30 of Genesis by focusing on the births of these 12 children who will loom large, very large, in the rest of the Old Testament story. And it's important to note that God is clearly depicted as the cause for these births. We see the expression, he, that's God, opened the womb with the birth of the first and the last child. So the, the larger picture is becoming clearer for us as we move on. The, the great nation that Abraham and Sarah were promised is, is, is gradually becoming a reality. The same blessing given to Rebekah, Isaac's wife, and, and to Jacob of, of innumerable descendants is beginning to happen through these 12 descendants, through these 12 sons. After the, the birth of these kids, Jacob decides to go back to his homeland, Canaan. And along the way, Jacob becomes um, what Dempster says, born again, so to speak, as Israel after his, his wrestling with God in chapter 32. And we see in the narrative that, that Jacob wins the fight with God by losing, by becoming injured, by being broken physically, and having his name changed, which Israel literally means something like fighter of God or, or God's fighter. Jacob wins the, the, the blessing and will be God's conquering warrior in the earth. But he doesn't emerge from the, the encounter with the Lord unscathed, right? He, he has his, his leg or, or hip displaced, and he, he now has this injury for life. And, and Jacob... Or, or Israel and his 12 sons, the 
embryonic nation of Israel now enters the land after this encounter with Yahweh. The final narrative of the book focuses on Joseph and Judah, but more prominently Joseph, who are the children of Jacob. And it's against this backdrop that this new nation where, where the Joseph story is set with these 12 brothers that we see. And we find many of the themes that we've seen throughout Genesis in this narrative account, persecution, exile and return, uh, Israel being a blessing to the nations. You can see that clearly through Joseph's um, visions and help to the Pharaoh in Egypt. But of course, we also see the themes of genealogy and geography of dominion and dynasty emerge in the Joseph story as well, particularly in the beginning and ending of this narrative. So that's going to, what we're going to focus on for the rest of our time. So the Joseph story fulfills the prediction to Abraham about Israel sojourning outside the promised land that occurs in Genesis 15, 13. Right? You can go back and, and look in that. But but it's also about Israel being a blessing to the nations, in particular Egypt through the gifting and service of Joseph. So Dempster notes that, that three people, and this is how we're going to analyze these last 13 chapters. 13 chapters. I've got to do the math and just write this down before. Um, so first is Joseph. Joseph is Jacob's son from his preferred wife, Rachel. And Joseph has dreams of dominion and sovereignty that, that progress of narrative. The dreams Joseph has and then the, the favor his father shows him enrage his brothers at the beginning of this narrative and, and they leave him for dead out of, out of jealousy and anger and he gets taken into Egyptian captivity. Very famous story. It's really it's familiar to us, but it's really a tragic, terrible story if you read it. Um, very sad. Joseph continues to have dreams from the Lord. And Dempster writes of the significance of these dreams, writing, The dreams of an unlikely Israelite show that Yahweh is determined to bless the nations come what may, even if Israel wishes to destroy the one through whom the blessing will come. That individual, ironically, will become a person who will bring reconciliation and healing, not only for the nations, but also for Israel itself. Obviously, I think there's, there's points of connection here between Joseph and Christ, whom Israel will reject. So the second person that's important to, the, to this ending narrative is someone we've already seen, Jacob, or Israel. He's about to leave the land of promise. This is later, about chapter 46. He's about to leave the land of promise in the land and go to Egypt to find food with his family. And in Genesis 46, he hears from the Lord a promise that, that his exiled family will still become a huge nation and God will bring back the nation to this same land of promise one day. And immediately after this promise, we get another genealogical line, which we've learned in Genesis. Genealogical lines are very important. 
And this line is of Jacob and his family. And it serves as a fulfillment of the, the promise given to Abraham in Genesis 12. God is faithful to his promise and is still building a nation through the line of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And really, this is a beautiful text of, of fulfillment of God's promise in what seems like a terrible situation of famine and fleeing from the promised land. The third and, and final important figure in the narrative is Judah. Judah. And really, this whole episode, starting from chapter 37, according to Dempster, is a story devoted to the future of Judah's line of descent. Of Judah's line of descent. Judah, in the narrative, moves to a thriving Canaanite area. He marries Canaanite women, so do his sons. This is a bad idea. Not a good move. His son, Ur, he displeases the Lord, and he dies. And his, uh, his other son, Onan, likewise dies when he refuses to do the, the duty of a brother-in-law in the time of marrying Ur's wife, Tamar which the purpose of this duty was to raise up a descendant to carry on his, his brother's name as the eldest brother. Tamar then deceives Judah, her father-in-law, as disguising as a, as a prostitute and, and has his child. When, when Judah finds out, she, she's condemned to death by Judah, who then quickly changes his mind and admits his sin and then exonerates his daughter-in-law, Tamar. It's really a messed up story. Not good. It's another, it's another theme of humans really messing things up when they're trying to come up with plans to fulfill God's promises. It seems to happen quite a bit in Genesis and later in the scriptures. But the text concludes God does use it for good. The text concludes with the grandchildren of Judah, Perez, and Zerah. And these kids are important because the promised seed was coming from Judah's line, which his sons died. So through this tragedy comes the, the, the seed of hope. And at the end of the Joseph story, this is where we're going to finish. You can turn there. Genesis 49, there is a picture of Jacob pronouncing a powerful blessing upon his children, and particularly Judah. And what is important about this blessing is that it will be realized in the last days. That's, how the, that's what it literally says in the, in the Hebrew in, in verse 1. It might say, in the days to come, in your version. Those words, last days, are very important. And this is the first time we see this phrase in the Old Testament. It's a technical word meaning the end of time, the end of history. And I'm going to read this and just listen to the blessing and note the themes of dominion and dynasty given to Judah's line in Genesis 49. I'm going to read verses 8 through 12. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down, he crouched as a lion and as a lioness. Who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, 
until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. So Dempster argues from this blessing to Judah that we see here in Genesis 49, the big picture of the Joseph narrative begins to become clear. As Joseph is singled out in in his dream as the one before him his family will bow down to, so the nations will do the same to Judah and his line. From Judah's line will come a warrior king. His hand will be around his enemy's neck. I think this alludes back to the battle between the seed of the serpent and, and, and the seed of the woman in Genesis 3. The metaphor then is, is mixed with the picture of a, of a powerful, ferocious lion that, that utterly destroys its prey. Here we see the famous Lion of Judah language that will later be attributed to King Jesus. The message is clear. Judah's line will one day rule all the people of the earth in the last days. He will conquer his enemies and he will destroy the serpent. And in verse 10, it's stated that the scepter will not depart from Judah, that the scepter is the ruling rod of the king, symbolizing um, sovereign rule over his subjects. So the, the effect of this passage on the rest of the Old Testament is that the reader should anticipate now, as we move on from Genesis, we should anticipate a descendant from Judah's line whose dominion will encompass the entire world. There is clearly then, as, as all along in Genesis, but, but clear genealogical and geographical dimensions to this promise in chapter 49. There's promises of dominion and dynasty coming through the line of Judah. So at the end of Genesis, we see Israel, Jacob, looking to the end of history, and he sees there his son Judah, his seed, conquering enemies and extending rule over the entire world. And so I think it's safe to say, as we go on in this text, the line of Judah will be very important to the rest of the story. And so next week, we're going to move on to the rest of the Torah, the rest of the Pentateuch. We're going to begin our study through Exodus, through Deuteronomy. We'll see how far we get. We might get through all of it. I have to write it first. Um, But any final questions or comments before dismissing? That's kind of surprising, but okay. We are then dismissed.